0: Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me, please, uh, first of all, to Ezra chapter 7, Ezra chapter 7, I want you to put a finger there, you can find the book of Ezra uh, at the, kind of towards the end of the historical books, you have um, Samuel, King's Chronicles, Ezra, and then chapter 7. So put a finger there. Then go a few pages to the right to the book of Nehemiah. A lot of commentators believe that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are to be read as companion books and believe that it is quite likely that they had the same author. And that author might have been Ezra or Nehemiah. And then one more place. I want you to go to Romans in the New Testament. Romans And I want you to go not where you might be thinking you're going to go. We're not going to Romans 1 or Romans 3. We're going to Romans 15. Romans chapter 15. Read to you three verses from there that you probably haven't heard many sermons on. Ezra 7, Nehemiah 2, Romans 15. Ezra 7, Nehemiah 2, Romans 15. All right, we're there. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We love you for who you are and how you've revealed your Son, Jesus Christ, to us. We thank you for your patience, your mercy towards us. Thank you that you do not deal with us according to those sins, but according to your compassion. We thank you that you are as a Father to us. We thank you for our adoption. We thank you the Spirit within us helps us to cry, Abba, Father. We thank you that we have the surety of and and, and knowledge that not only are we justified in your sight, but we are part of your family. We thank you for that and pray that the Spirit would help us as we read, as we preach, as we listen together, that we might, Lord, be encouraged today. We pray that this week would be an encouragement to us in the midst of many uh, things that we see going on. Lord, we know that you're in control and you are building your church. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us not only just to see what has been done in the past, but to motivate us to do what we need to do in our own day. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So let's start at Ezra chapter 7, please. Ezra chapter 7, I want you to look with me at verse 8 through 10. Ezra 7, verses 8 through 10. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. And listen to this, verse 10, for Ezra, of whom we're speaking here, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Now that first reading was about Ezra, boys and girls. Now we're going to read about Nehemiah. They were contemporaries of one another. They knew each other. They they were reformers together. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, That wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I, Nehemiah, I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when... The city, the place of my father's tombs, that is Jerusalem, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter uh, to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. And then finally, let's look at Romans chapter 15, verse 22, Romans 15, 22. Same idea here, but from the New Testament. <clears throat> Paul writes, Romans 15, verse 22, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Amen. Now, what does Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Apostle Paul have in common, and what does it have to do with the Reformation? Well, in each of these texts, I'm going to make the case that you see people who had what I'm going to call holy ambition and what they did with that holy ambition. Now, many uh, Reformed churches, we're not trying to create some kind of new you know, uh, holiday uh, to put on a liturgical calendar by having Reformation Sunday, but I think it is appropriate for us uh, this time of year to think together about the blessings that God has given us as a church. You realize, especially I want you young people to realize, that many of the blessings we take for granted here Sunday by Sunday came to us by way of much struggle and sacrifice. What had happened over time was that the church began through the centuries to moor away from the teaching of the Scripture and began to introduce many things into the worship of God and the practice of God and the teaching uh, uh, of salvation that really were not according to the Bible. And what the Reformation sought to do, what Martin Luther sought to do, began to do, was to try and bring things back to what the Scripture actually said. Uh, Martin Luther uh, began with several issues. He wrote a, a, a 95 theses about it, and you know the story. He nailed it to the door at Wittenberg in what is today modern Germany. And Martin Luther wasn't necessarily looking to set the world on fire by doing that. Actually, it was very common in his day, if you wanted to have an academic discussion to do what Martin Luther did. You write your paper and then you put it on the internet, right, you, you put it on the door. Now, that was the internet back then, boys and girls. And uh, you, you put your, your website up on the door. And people came by and read it and began to discuss it. And if they wanted to reply, they <laughs> replied to it. And, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. And they would, they would put their things in response uh, to that paper. Um, of course, the Lord used this discussion and debate far beyond, I think, what even Luther may have imagined uh, would have happened when he first put it on there. What I want to argue here from this text is that we have three examples, from, one from Ezra, one from Nehemiah, and one from the Apostle Paul, where in each case, they sought to do something that they felt that would be good for God's church and God's kingdom. They had, what I'm going to argue, a holy ambition. And what I want to do is use this as really an occasional sermon, a topical sermon, to encourage each of us to develop, uh, maybe with pad and paper, pen and paper, excuse me, uh, maybe to work on some holy ambitions under the Lord, and then how do we go about executing some of those holy ambitions? Now I remember many years ago when I was a younger minister, I had a question for Joel Beakey. He's a famous Reformed preacher up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, boys and girls. And I sent him an email and I asked him a question that had been on my mind for some time as a minister. And that the question was this: How much should a minister pray in his ministry? How much should a minister pray? Dr. Beakey's answer to that question, I thought, was both interesting and liberating. You know what the answer was? He basically said, each man has to find his own way on this question. And I thought that was really interesting and liberating. He didn't try to saddle me with what some of the great heroes of the faith had done, and, 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 um, and to, you know, you're not measuring up unless you do exactly as they did, Uh, He rather, I think, wisely said, you basically, Boyd, are going to have to figure it out before God on your own. I say that and I tell that story because as I give this sermon, I am going to make that same caveat here in the preamble. And that is, this holy ambition of which I am speaking, you're going to have to figure out on your own. You are not Martin Luther. I'm not Martin Luther. We're not John Calvin. We're not Knox or anybody else. You are who you are. And we're not called to be those men. We're not even called to compare ourselves necessarily to many of the great reformers that we do commemorate and celebrate. We are called with our own unique calling. My calling is not yours and yours is not mine. So I, as I give this message... I do not want to saddle you with a, a, a lot of expectations and exhortations that are impossible for us to fulfill. I do, however, want you to make to take stock, though, of what your gifts are. What is the season of life that you're in right now? What are the opportunities that might be before you? These kinds of questions and answers. I think, change with all of us over time. When you're a young mom with you know, multiple children at your knees, the answer is going to look differently than you are as a woman who is now an empty nester. And so we all have to take stock of where we are in life and, the, and to assess the gifts that God has given us. The Bible teaches Uh, both in the book of Corinthians and in Romans in the latter chapters, that the Spirit of God, as one of the blessings of Jesus Christ's atonement and resurrection, is that the Spirit gives the body of Christ various opportunities and gifts, and that we are to use those gifts and develop those gifts for the glory of God. That means that all of us have to make assessments of what, where our strengths are, and to look at our opportunities. What do we say yes to, and what by necessary consequence we say no to? So first of all, I want us to see how Ezra and Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul had what I'm calling holy ambition here. Now, if we go back to Ezra in chapter seven, Ezra, boys and girls, was a priest. And the people of God had gone into captivity for a period of 70 years because of their apostasy from God. They had been unfaithful to God in their worship and in their ethics. And after many centuries of warning through the prophets, God finally brought a judgment on them, first through the Assyrians, then finally through the Babylonians, And led them into a captivity where they would spend 70 years living in exile, away from the land of promise, away from the temple, away from Jerusalem. In fact, God even destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. Jeremiah had said that this would last for about 70 years. Ezra and Nehemiah, reading their Bible along with Daniel, you remember Daniel read the same text and he realized the time was up, it was time to return. Notice what Ezra does in verse 10 of chapter 7. Ezra, it said, had a holy ambition, and that was this. He said, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances where? In exile? No, in Israel. It was time to go back home. It was time for the people of God to return to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was to be realized through faith in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ezra had a holy ambition. He was going to devote himself to his priesthood. He was going to study the Bible, and he was going to study the Bible not just for himself, but he was going to practice it and to teach its statutes and ordinances to the people of God. That was going to be Ezra's little reformation. Ezra had a goal to study the scriptures and to teach the scriptures and to teach them back in Israel. That God would use that to help bring about the return of God's people in the land. Look at Nehemiah in chapter 2. Nehemiah, as I said, boys and girls, was a contemporary of Ezra. That means he lived at the same time Ezra did. They knew each other. But Nehemiah was not a priest like Ezra. Nehemiah was a governor. He's a politician. And see, you can be a godly politician. Okay? So it is a lawful calling, as the Westminster Confession says. Nehemiah was an executive, worked in the executive branch while he was in captivity. He wanted to use those gifts in the service of his people by going back and to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls, the gates, and also to help oversee the building of the temple. And so you see that Nehemiah is sad about the condition. The king notices it in his countenance and says, Nehemiah, what's wrong? I've known you for a while, and you've never acted like this before. Something's troubling you. What is the matter? And Nehemiah does what? He prays, doesn't he? He shoots up what today we call the arrow prayer, right? He <laughs> he prays on his feet, if you will. He says, "Lord, help, help, help! Give me wisdom." You know, I I, I sometimes will do that. People say, "Pastor, I have a question." My first thought is, "Oh Lord, help!" <laughs> you know, give me wisdom. <laughs> And so he prays, Lord, give me wisdom here. What do I say? And basically he says, you know, the the land of my father's is is in ruins and I want to go back and I want to rebuild the walls and I want you, king, to give me permission to go and to give me papers that'll get me there safely uh, in passage. And uh, I I have this great project I want to do. And it's interesting that even when you go later, uh, in the book, I love my, I think my favorite scene in Nehemiah, maybe besides him pulling out the beards of people who are disobedient, but, but the other favorite scene of mine is where he's on the horse at night and he's going around the wall at night. And I love that scene because he tells us that he, um, that he hasn't shared it. His, his holy ambition is still only in him and he hasn't shared it yet with everybody else. Now, he comes in that chapter to do that very thing. But he goes and he inspects the gate um, quietly at night uh, by himself with his horse. And um, and then you have the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15. And I, I wanted to give you one from the New Testament as well. And in Romans 15 because you're getting towards the end of Romans and this is you know the kind of the coda where people kind of speed start speed reading you know because he's he's wrapping it up and you know you think oh I got through all the good theology parts here this is just kind of the you know the the farewell part and but notice what he says here and this is why I say I don't think you've probably heard too many sermons on this but if you look at verse 25 um Or no, excuse me, 24. He says, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you, this is see you in Rome, you Roman Christians, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Now, I personally do not know whether Paul ever made it to Spain or not or whether he just, he never got there at all. And, and I do want to say this, but two things. One is that he had a holy ambition to get there. Not that our holy ambitions are written in stone from on high. They always have to be directed by Scripture and the providence of God. And so I don't know whether Paul actually made it to Spain, to the Iberian Peninsula or not, in his own lifetime. But for our purposes, one, I just want you to see that that was his ambition. You know, I've shared this story with you before, that we as Presbyterians adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism. All the officers have to take a vow that we subscribe to these documents. And You know, it's a fascinating story when you consider the history of how these documents came about that their holy ambition was just to try and unify the church's doctrine and worship practices in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. That was the ambition. And it actually was a failure. Lincoln Duncan has a great lecture on this subject. He calls it the, the wonderful failure. And they actually failed in accomplishing that. England stayed, as you know, with more of the Anglican tradition, and Scotland went with the Presbyterian tradition. Um, and But the... The, the wonderful part about it was that though they had this holy ambition to unify the United Kingdom with one uh, book of worship and one uh, confession and catechism, set of catechisms, was that even though that failed, God still used it. And so even as we set maybe what might be for us, what would God have me to do in a, my day as a holy ambition, to realize that though that ambition may not be realized in the hopes and aspirations that I had for it, it is not in vain in the Lord. Remember the Apostle Paul tells us that what we do, we do it with all our might as unto Christ. And Paul tells us also that our labor is not in vain in Christ. Even if it gives the appearance of vanity, even if it seems like this was all for nothing, God has his own reasons and purposes for using our work and our prayers the way he does. So the thing I want you to see is, one, that you should have holy ambition. And by holy ambition, I don't mean a selfish ambition. That's what the world focuses on. I mean, that's what the whole self-help section in the bookstore is. You know, it's just... You know, selfish ambition. But it's to have aspirations beyond ourself for future generations. It's to have aspirations for people other than ourselves. Maybe a people group somewhere in the world that's unreached. Maybe it's a particular ministry here in the States, whatever it may be. Maybe it's simply getting your grandkids catechized, whatever that aspiration might be. To have that aspiration, but also to recognize that our labor is not in vain even if things work out a little differently than we thought they would. That's why I said Paul wanted to go to Spain, but we don't know whether he got there. So as we come to this subject of having a holy ambition, we ask ourselves this question by application, and that is this, what do I want to do for the Lord before I die? The Bible says that the Lord gives us life And that at the end of the life, it is appointed for us to die. We're realists as Christians. We're not pretending here. The Bible says that if we want to have wisdom, teach us to number our days. Have you ever done that literally? I have. I say, well, if I live to the age of my fathers, and I count, you know, the number of years left and multiply that by 365, you're like, whoa, there it is. You know, right there on my calculator. um, How many days do I have left? The Bible says that it is appointed unto men to die, and then comes what? The judgment. So God is going to hold you and me accountable, not for fighting the fights of the 16th century or the 17th century, so that while we are remembering and commemorating the reformation of that first, second, third generation of reformers, and I think we should. It's a way of honoring our mothers and fathers according to the fifth commandment. And it's also a way of saying to the church that went before us, we have need of you. Okay, Remember the I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. We tend to think of it in terms of our contemporaries. But I think you can also think of it in terms of trans centuries that <laughs> we, we have need of those who have gone before us here Amen. so that but but while saying all of that to say that their battle was their battle and our reformation is our Reformation today. I am not called to do things exactly uh, what you know had to be done in Calvin's day. We have our own issues, our own problems, our own circumstances. And we but we do incorporate the principles of the Reformation. Sola scriptura. Where do we go for wisdom? We go to the Bible. The, 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 the Bible is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. We search the scriptures. Um, we look to Christ in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament, we find Christ, or the New Testament, we see Christ. But it is, it is the scriptures that we go to, and this was a, a reformational principle here. So the applications may be different to our own day, but the principles are, are the same. So the question here is what do we do with our stewardship? The life and the opportunities that we have, the gifts that we have, what do we want to do before the final judgment? You know, I I say to, um, periodically, to those that I minister to um, at the Florence Hand Home and Twin Fountains, because the question arises sometimes with them, well, what what do we do? We're in a nursing home now. And I said, you know, even in the nursing home, and this will lead into my next point here about prayer, but even there, we we can pray and participate in the kingdom work. Uh, You know, it's hard to pray. If you've got a huge and busy schedule with uh, so many appointments that need to be fulfilled um, in, in your family calendar. So this applies to all of us. None of us are exempt from saying, what, what holy ambition may I have still yet before the Lord? And what can I do at this point uh, for the Lord? Maybe you're not sure this morning and I want to say, first of all, that's okay. I don't want you to feel badly about that. Do you think Gideon knew all his life what he was going to do? You don't get that sense with Gideon, do you? Gideon's in the wine press. What's he doing? He's hiding. He's hiding from the enemies of Israel. Why Why is he hiding in the winepress? Because he's threshing out wheat, boys and girls, and he's afraid that if he does it on the ground above, Remember, wine presses are below the earth. It's a little pit you go down into. He's afraid if he does it on the top of the ground, on the top of the soil, that they'll see he's got grain. And they'll come and they'll steal it from him. And so he's hiding. It's a time of of oppression and defeat. And, And yet in Judges 6, we see how God calls him. He meets him right where he is. So it's okay if you don't have a great plan right now. Maybe you're young, uh, and you you don't you're trying to figure out your life right now. You're trying. I don't know, Pastor. You know, I don't even know where I'm supposed to go to school. You know, next year, next two years, much less my calling. That's okay. Uh, Do what you are supposed to do right now, and do that faithfully under the Lord, and see where the Lord directs you. See where He directs your your passions. See where He directs your gifts, and the opportunities that you have. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul, they they had holy ambitions. For Nehemiah and Ezra, it was to rebuild the walls of Zion and the temple. For Paul, it was to spread the gospel to the the westernmost part of Europe, at least on the continent of, of Europe. Now again, we're not trying to make, quote, a name for ourselves. That's what the men at the Tower of Babel were doing, or Babel. The the Bible says we will make a name for ourselves. That was a selfish ambition that was rising up against the purposes of God, and God had to come down and judge that. You remember that Jeremiah's uh, amanuensis, Baruch, struggled with that. You know that Jeremiah even had to write a little chapter for Baruch, and say, "Baruch, now's not the time to, you know, to be planning great things for yourself." He said, uh, "We have other things that we need to do." So this is not to be a a call to self-centeredness. It is a, it's a call for us to lay our lives before God as a living sacrifice, according to Romans chapter twelve. To be God-centered, Christ-centered in ambition, and to do something for the Lord. So I would ask maybe that you prayerfully consider what the Lord might be stirring up within your own spirit. And again, this is where Dr. Beakey's advice is helpful, that this is a question you're going to have to answer. I cannot answer that for you. You will have to answer that for yourself before the Lord. Now, there may be an opportunity to give counsel uh, that if, if it involves maybe great changes in family or plans or vocation, uh, then you want to seek counsel. Probably not wise to quit your job and to say, I'm leaving for seminary tomorrow. Uh, you may want to uh, seek a little advice and, and ask here, uh, do I have the gifts for this? Um, is this something... That the, that the elders can say, yeah, we could see you, you know, going into the pastoral ministry. I, you know, it's, it, it is kind of sad to see men who invest the time and the money and the energy in going into seminary and then look for a call, and they don't get a call, and they don't get a call, and they try church after church after church. And, and you know, you, you almost wish somebody had just told them, you know, brother, I don't think this is for you. You know, they, they, they just never were that edifying in the pulpit to begin with. Maybe there was this, You know, hope that they would get there, Um, and so we should. You know, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, uh, but it is still a a a call that you are going to have to decide. You know, this is something I struggled with in the ministry. Was I didn't struggle with the external call? Lots of people were affirming that it was the inward call. I was afraid to go where God may not have sent. And I had great... If, if anybody was the most reluctant for me being here, it was me. <laughs> I was the most uncertain. Uh, but at some point, you have, to, you have to make that decision. I think also, not only is this a personal issue, but a corporate one. That is to collectively consider what might the Lord have us do corporately as a congregation or as a presbytery. And, you know, it may not be, you know, earth-shattering... But it might be, you know, it might be something relatively small. Uh, you know, I can think back in 2003, we had a couple guys visiting uh, this church who were students at the college. And they just one day came to me and they said, hey, would you mind if we did this at the on the campus? You know, just do a Bible study on the campus. I said, I would love to do that. But I said, look, if we're going to do that, then we're going to do it the right way. We're not just going to march on the campus as though we had every right to be there we're going to go through the administration and get approved by them as an official recognized ministry and then we'll go from there and it took us about a semester to do that and then we and that's why our anniversary is in february (laughs) for reformation bible fellowship but that's all it was it was just a couple students saying hey you know we'd like to have a bible study here And, and yet you know here we are 20 years later and Some of the families that are members of this church are here because of that ministry, because of two students. This wasn't my idea. You know, I wasn't the one who said, oh, let's start a campus ministry. It was was two college students who who said, we'd like to do this. Will you help us? Um, It might be, you know, just recently, uh, our presbytery has just started a family camp. Um, and from the, the word I'm getting, though it's only been going for the last two summers, uh, it's been a, a great success. It's been a, a wonderful time for those who have gone uh, to feel really a building, a, a, a connectedness with the, the, the people who are in our presbytery that go to other churches, other congregations here. So it may be that it, maybe it's a small ambition but who knows, maybe God will use it beyond what you could ask or imagine. So how is this going to happen? Well, I, one, my next point here is that it's going to have to involve prayer. Now, as one uh, theologian has said, you can always do more than pray. But you can't do more until you pray. can always do more than pray, but you can't do more unless you pray. So one of the things that we see here from Ezra and Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul was that all of their work and activity and holy ambition was bathed in prayer. As I said here from Nehemiah, the first thing Nehemiah did before he answered was to shoot up a quick prayer. You know, if you look at the book of Acts, almost in every chapter, one of the things that you note in, through much of the book of Acts is that prayer is mentioned by name or example in every chapter almost of the book of Acts. They're always at prayer as they do this great work. If you look at Ezra chapter 8 and uh, verse 21, Ezra chapter 8 and verse 21, Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and our possessions. That is, before the people of God with Ezra go back to the land, they have a day of fasting and a day of prayer. I want to, uh, us to consider in the Reformed tradition that I think that prayer And prayer with fasting is something that has been set to the side, I think, a bit in our tradition. If we can continue with the theme of reformation, remember that the reformers themselves always spoke of always reforming. And as we are to continue to be going back to the Bible uh, for uh, our piety. And one of the things as you see is fasting and prayer. You don't hear much about fasting and prayer uh, these days. But uh, we we see it in the Bible all the time. We see when Abraham's servant was looking for a wife for Isaac, he he fasted, uh, we're told. Moses fasted before receiving the law at Mount Sinai. In Leviticus 16 and 23, there was fasting on the Day of Atonement. Uh, We see that there was fasting when the tribe of Benjamin was defeated severely in battle when Hannah was oppressed in her soul because her vision, her holy aspiration to be a mother was not being realized. What did she do? She fasted and prayed at the temple because of her misery. Um, and, And God, you know, blessed that fasting and prayer. We are told that David with his men fasted and mourned at the death of, of Saul when calamity, even against a man who had been persecuting him personally, died because he was the Lord's anointed. They fasted and prayed. David fasted when he was confronted by Nathan with his own sin. Elijah fasted. He went in the strength of the food that God had provided in First Kings 19 uh, for 40 days, we're told. And that that was an extraordinary fast, to be sure, maybe even miraculous. Uh, But the point is that there was fasting. In Psalm 35, he said, My clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. And and we could go on. We see it in the New Testament before they lay hands on uh, elders and missionaries. They humbled themselves with fasting and, and prayer. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. So if we are to have holy ambitions, uh, we need to bathe those ambitions and bring those ambitions before God and say, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way within me, O Lord. And we do so by way of prayer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, and, uh, excuse me, Matthew, section chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, he said, not if, but when you fast. And so we need to be devoting ourselves to prayer as we uh, seek the Lord and, and, and examine ourselves and our holy ambitions before God that we, we bathe those ambitions in kingdom prayers. And then I want to also mention uh, thirdly, in addition to having holy ambition and bathing that ambition in prayer, finally to, to work we cannot just leave it to prayer alone. But you know, just as we pray for our daily bread, we go to that vocation that God has called us and we work and labor as unto the Lord, not seeking to please the eyes of men, but to please our Lord that we work hard even in secret when no one else is watching us. And so it has to be with the kingdom work as well. The task of Ezra and the task of Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul, these all were difficult tasks. The task of reforming the church according to the word of God through the teaching and preaching by Ezra or the rebuilding of the walls and the gates and the temple through Nehemiah or bringing the gospel to unreached parts of the world of the European continent in the days of the Apostle Paul. These were difficult tasks. They faced opposition internally and externally. Ezra had to deal with compromised marriages in Ezra 10. Nehemiah had opposition and persecution from Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Nehemiah had to correct and discipline those that had been enslaving their brethren among the Israelites. And the Apostle Paul had to work day and night in tent making sometimes. Nehemiah would not interrupt the progress on the wall to meet with the enemies, he said. He had to uphold, Nehemiah had to uphold discipline with regard to the Sabbath. There was a lot of difficult days, a lot of hard work, a lot of ministry. But the Reformers had a little Latin phrase, Ora et labora, prayer and work, prayer and work. This was one of the several Latin mottos of the Reformation that if the the church was to be reformed in Europe and beyond in the Protestant Reformation, it would be done so through prayer and work. Let me make my closing remarks here. As we think about the Reformation, and we look back this week on what God has done in his church by raising up committed people to the scriptures, let us hear ourselves think about what we need to do in our day as well? How can we be faithful in ministry in prayer and work? You're going to have to answer that question. But we should be encouraged. Number one, we see that God uses ordinary people. The Apostle Paul says that God does not ordinarily call those who are extraordinary, though he does do that, and we're grateful for the Calvins and the Augustans and the Luthers, right? We're grateful for that. But most of us are ordinary. And yet we find that it is ordinary people that God most frequently uses in the building of his church. You know, that the, the Protestant Reformation while certainly it was a huge help to have Luther and Calvin writing the books they wrote, it was ordinary business people who transmitted those books, who smuggled those books, who passed those books on through their businesses as they engaged in international trade. It was the ordinary people who often were the ones who disseminated the, the great books that made the difference. It is ordinary people who do and often are used. I'm reminded of the story of there was a mailman in Mississippi um, several decades ago. Not an extraordinary guy, just an ordinary mailman going about his work. But this mailman came up with an idea. He said, you know, there are a lot of great sermons that have been preached out there and they've been recorded. He said, you know, what if we duplicate all these great sermons on cassette tapes and then we start distributing them through the mail? And that's what he did. He started just taking the best of the best sermons that were preached out there, the best preachers out there, and he's in a small town in Mississippi. And this uh, ministry had significant influence on, the, on, on uh, the church, particularly as we were going through the crisis in the South uh, with regard to a split from the mainline church. And to hear the, the, uh, about the Puritans and the, and, the, and the great preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, his sermons were recorded. Uh, and, but they were distributed through a mailman who had a vision, how to bless the church. And he had the means as a mailman to help in that distribution. Um, God will often call the ordinary don't be discouraged if you don't have a lot of gifts the point of God's judgment if you can look at what Jesus says about the parable of the talents it's not how many talents do you have it was how many talents do you have in relation in proportion to the number of talents you were given in the first place not everybody is a five talent person some people get five talents. Some people get three. The Most of us get two or one. And the idea is to double what you've been given. You'll be rewarded as, cheap, as greatly as the guy with the lots of talents. It's actually harder. If you've got five talents, if you're an R.C. Sproul, you've got a whole lot more you've got to do. So be thankful if you're a two-talent person. <laughs> I only got to get to four. <laughs> Not ten. <laughs> the question here is not to compare myself to others, and and that I'm not doing as much as they did, but to ask: Am I though being, uh, am I being faithful in the stewardship of what God has called me to do? So I, I hope this is helpful to you, um, and I hope in many ways as liberating as an answer as I got from Dr. Beakey when I asked him that question as a young minister.